Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at clora.com. I'm excited to welcome Mahesh Karande, president and CEO of Omega Therapeutics today. Great to have you on today, Mahesh. Rahul, thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. So Mahesh, to kick us off, would love if you could walk us through how you got interested into biotech, the different roles that you've had across your career, and how you got to where you are today. Definitely. So the journey towards biotech starts you know, a while back, post-business school. By training, I'm an engineer. I'm very scientific in orientation, but my background is in engineering with a master's degree in engineering from Georgia Tech. And then I went and got my MBA from the Warden School in, you know, very traditional path after that, trying to figure out as an engineer, what is it that I really should do? I decided to take a couple of more years to figure that out and went into consulting. And I was very fortunate that I actually got a chance to work in a couple of very dynamic industries. One was telecom and technology and the other one was pharmaceuticals by virtue of being in the New Jersey office of McKinsey. And as I worked there, I realized that I loved the pharmaceutical business because it was super innovative. It had something to do with patients. I think at that time, obviously, it wasn't very clear to me as to why I liked it, but it looked innovative. It was fast moving and it had a purpose. So when I decided to leave consulting, I decided to move into the pharmaceutical industry. And, you know, funnily enough, I guess, serendipitously, both my sisters, as we grew up, are doctors, and they're both older to me, and my father was an executive in the pharma industry. So I think subliminally somewhere, I was pretty attracted to the industry, and I kind of landed in the industry. And then, look, over the years, I spent most of my time at Novartis Pharma, and Novartis was an incredible company, which gave me the opportunity to grow tremendously. And I held several roles, you know, really grew up in marketing. I was running part of the Diavan brand team, which was Novartis's major blockbuster and then over time, I worked for Novartis across the world. I went to the headquarters in Switzerland. I did deals. I did strategy. And then I actually went into general management where I worked in emerging markets for a while. I ran Egypt, had a chance to sort of run Egypt through the second revolution. And then I went to Africa. That is where sort of my interest in this really fast-moving, dynamic sphere that is pharma and biotech really started taking shape because when you're in emerging markets and you're making decisions that are saving people's lives, you're making decisions that are helping governments, and it's much faster than what you would expect in large countries like the United States, right? That's what I what I was used to. And at one point, about a few years ago, as a family, as the kids grew up, we decided to come back home to New Jersey. And your question was how I got interested in biotech. I think one of the things that Love Novartis, love Big Pharma. But when I got back to the U.S., I really realized the change of pace in my work in emerging markets versus my work in the U.S. Although I was heading up a franchise, I was in the U.S. leadership team. It was a pretty good job. But what I realized, I don't know whether I should say this, but what I really realized is I could have stayed home for three months and nothing would have changed in my job. And that's when it clicked to me that what I really enjoy is the fast pace the ability to make a difference, the ability to create something new, which is what I was doing when I was abroad. And that's one of the reasons why I sought 
to move into biotech, which is a much more faster moving world. You are able to make a difference every day. And, you know, it's just incredibly innovative, right? That's how I made the move to Cambridge and Boston and decided that's where I needed to be. Wonderful, Mahesh. And talk to us a little bit about what that transition was like for you going from pharma to biotech and particularly in that CEO seat. And what were some of the lessons you took from your days in pharma? And what were some of the things where you needed to adapt and learn because you were in a different environment? Absolutely. Look, I think big pharma trains you exceptionally well. The difference between big pharma and biotech is as follows, right? In big pharma, when you spend time, you have a depth of understanding, a depth of knowledge in narrow siloed areas sometimes, right? But in biotech, you need to wear multiple number of hats, right? At any given level. I think the difference, though, there are very few people who can make the transition from pharma into biotech really successfully. And I think I've written actually a white paper on that, Rahul, which I'm happy to send to you. But yeah. one of the things there, right, is a person's orientation. I love to think of it from the learning agility standpoint. I think you kind of have to be very adaptive. You have to have high agility and be entrepreneurial. The interesting thing that I realized later on about myself is it's a little bit of a chicken and egg. Why did I go to countries like Egypt or why did I run Africa when I could have been very comfortably ensconced in the US? I think that entrepreneurialism, that need to do something, and that was one of the reasons why I moved from pharma into biotech. That is what I think makes the difference. So for people who are thinking of moving from pharma to biotech, I think you really need to examine yourself to see whether you're truly entrepreneurial, whether you love to get your hands dirty, whether you're willing to roll up your sleeves and do all kinds of stuff, not be sort of comfortable in a siloed environment where there's a lot of support. That is what I realized was a big difference. And so for me, it fortunately came naturally because I think I'm oriented that way. But I've seen a lot of people struggle on that as to how you make that transition. So those are my two sets there. And I think I landed in a place where in biotech, in a small company, I mean, you kind of have to have multiple hats. And I did that when I was the head of president of Novartis for Africa, right? When you are running the 46 countries, each with different problems and completely different landscapes. And you know, you have to deal with Ebola, you have to deal with oil crisis and still figure out how to make your numbers. That's a whole different mindset, which is very applicable in biotech, right? Yeah, that's that a great point. To make the transition. Yeah. And I'm curious if you were to reflect a little bit, how is exposure to different cultures and managing teams across the globe informed your own current management style? I think, you know, I talked a little bit, there are two aspects to this, right? I talked a little bit about learning agility. One of the big components of learning agility is obviously mental agility, change agility, people agility, and results, right? Mental agility, results agility, you can figure out. I mean, I think delivering results and, you know, using your whatever intellectual horsepower you have, can you use it in a good way? But I think the change in the people agility is extremely important. Because when you work in different cultures, those are the two that really get tested, right? How adaptive are you to change? Because people across the world have very different ethos. And you kind of have to make it work in the ambient ethos of the country that you're in. That's one piece. And then obviously people agility, that you need to actually connect with people and get, you know, nobody can do work on their own, right? There's no way. So how do you actually corral people? How do you actually motivate people? How do you empower them? How do you work with them? Those are the things that you kind of learn 
if you're open to it and when you actually get exposed to all these different cultures. So look, for me personally, that helped. The fact that I'm an immigrant from India helped because I had left my own culture and come here in my very early 20s and adapted to the United States. So that helped. One important thing that really crystallized for me during my time abroad in emerging markets particularly is this couple of concepts. One is this concept of patient centricity. Why am I in this business? So I always kind of knew that, hey, there's a higher purpose in pharmaceuticals. But what became clear to me is these medicines save lives. And not only here in countries where, you know, you can afford to you know, buy these medicines or access to medicines, but you need to create access to medicines across the world. And that piece that goes to sort of the empathy part of your EQ, that really crystallized for me and gave me a solid purpose as to why I love this industry and why I want to be in this, right? And then the second piece was, as I was thinking about what is it from a leadership and an ethos standpoint that I really, really admire? And what became clear to me is this ethos, this duality of ambitious yet humble, right? So whether you are in Africa and trying to solve a problem, you know, for the government of Angola that doesn't have any money because all money is gone because of the oil crisis, but they are facing a rainy season with malaria. How do you actually help them when they don't have money? What are the creative solutions? And to drive that, you need to have the highest level of ambition to make sure that happens. In a company like Omega, which we'll talk about, you know, to take pristine science and create a drug development platform, you have to have the highest level of ambition. But you also have to have a significant sort of understanding that you cannot do this on your own, right? You never can. You're standing on shoulders of giants. You're going to test your medicines and patients. You're going to help patients, right? There is an inherent humility that has to come through, right? If you're going to be the leader in these roles. So that dual concept, ambitious yet humble, sort of really crystallized to me. And you know, I worked with a very senior leader in those days who actually had that philosophy as well. So behind me, you see the painting of Nelson Mandela. Yeah. And as I was in Africa, and as I get to a mature age, right, in my 30s, my 40s, what I realized is the ethos that he stood for, which is ambitious and humble, he personified it. So that's what really crystallized for me as well. Wonderful, Mahesh. Thank you for reflecting with us on your own journey across many different cultures. I wanted to now switch gears a little bit and talk about you being a CEO. So you've been a CEO once before prior to your current role at Omega Therapeutics. I'd love to hear how you're approaching this role differently the second time around than you did the first time and any learnings and observations you've had along the way. I approach both the roles very similarly. I think the difference is that this is a much more dynamic company scientifically, much more sort of advanced at the cutting edge of biology and technology, attracts a lot more funding, a lot of interest, right? So I think it's dealing with that, which I've been doing this now for four years, right? I've built a team from 25 people to 130 people, and we've built it very stage appropriately. I've been able to recruit some of the best people that I can could find, not only in the team at the executive level, but also on my board. So these are the differences because the previous team was very short, about a year. But I think over here, I really learned how to build a company, you know, and take pristine science and actually get into the clinic through my team. And look, the entire credit for that goes to my team. Without my team, 25 people that grew to 130, I could not have done. 
It's a very interesting thing, right? We talked a little bit about leadership. We talked about ethos. We talked about culture, working through people. This is leadership in action for me. I mean, everything that I've theoretically believed in that I like, the proof of it is in building a company like Omega, that you're actually able to do that. And people, you create an environment for people that they bring their best and they are able to solve problems that have never been solved before. So I think that is the big difference. And that is what I've really learned here. I'd love to double click on that. So what have you learned that you'd be willing to share around how to motivate folks in a really fast-paced environment that is required given what you're doing? And how has that approach evolved over time? That's a million-dollar question or a billion-dollar question, to be honest with you. Here's my philosophy on that, right? If you think about it, in the U.S., at least, right, most of the world, in fast-paced environments and high-tech companies, right, whether they're biology or technology, Fortunately or unfortunately, we spend most of our waking hours working. So you want to create an environment where people really want to give their best, right? So that's one piece that you have to really understand. The second piece that you have to understand is, look, you go out and hire the best people. You have to create an environment where they can actually be and living their best selves every single day, right? What that means is you need to create and you need to be the champion and you need to sort of foster a culture that truly allows that to happen. What we did at Omega is, you know, I talked a little bit about our ethos and very early, you know, I joined in March of 2019 and around, I remember August of 2019, as we thought about what would be sort of the cultural pillars of Omega. You know, we talked about the ethos and the leadership team at that time came up with our values and behaviors, but that was just a blueprint. And then we worked with the entire organization over a course of a day, where we really delineated Omega's values and behaviors. And that has become a blueprint for us to go back to every single time. And we take those values and behaviors and our culture and our ethos very, very seriously. And what that has done is that has really allowed us to stay true to ourselves as a company and hire the right people. There's a whole self-selection process that goes on. As a company, we don't even tolerate superstars who are culturally that actually don't fit into our values because any sort of that kind of toxicity actually is not worth it in the long run. And by the way, this is nowhere close to being a cult. So I, I just want to be very clear that yeah, yeah. Cultish about it, but it is a very open, clear culture, right? If you think about our values, right? Trust, resilience, authenticity, innovation, leadership, each with behaviors associated with it. People love that. You know, most of our hiring happens by word of mouth. And our attrition rate last year was half of that of the industry in Boston. And, you know, we have people here who are, you know, I mean, think about it. There are people who are tenured for four years, five years, three years in biotech in Cambridge. Yeah. That's what I think is extremely important. That's what you need to create. Yeah, there's proof in the pudding. You know, one in five employees switched jobs last year across biotech. So, exactly. you know, and our attrition was around 12%. Wow. Well, Mahesh, we have lots to unpack around culture and leadership, but also want to talk a bit now about what you're working on at Omega. For starters, I'd love to hear your perspective and if you could educate us around what programmable approaches to biology really means and what excites you about that space. Programmable medicines is really the wave of the future, right? Because I think what that means is you can literally, prospectively program properties into medicine fit for purpose. 
And what that allows you to do is it takes away sort of the stochastic nature of drug development that we have known for for a better part of a century. And what it does is it allows you to create medicines that have a much higher probability of success, right, at every stage. That's really what we're doing. So if you let, let me step back, right? From an Omega standpoint, I think a couple of things that excited me a lot. Right? When I first heard about the science, that you could literally, this science was delineated in 2016. And the first cell paper came out in 2016 that the Whitehead Institute, the Rick Young, put out. And then flagship pioneering, which is obviously the founder of Omega, David Berry and Nuba and their team were working on the same problem and they created the company together. And I joined in 2019. I remember a cold November morning when I was speaking to David Berry in Cambridge. You know, I was talking to him about something completely different. And then he started telling me about Omega and the science. And what struck me, Raul, is that what I realized at that point is the science that he was talking about, if that could be converted into a drug development platform and you could actually make medicines, it had the potential to change medicine. And that's where actually the name Omega came from as well, right? It's the end all. And when I realized that, what struck me was I had been involved in every therapeutic area, being, you know, a senior manager at Novartis across as a GM and across the world, right? But what I realized is the breadth of this platform, if it could be developed, would be such that it would work in every disease area. And I realized that there's a discontinuity that happens once or if you're lucky twice in your life. And I realized that I needed to be a part of this discontinuity. That's why I joined. That's the faith. Which, which I joined Omega. And look, when I joined, it was incredible work had been done from taking that early science to really sort of understand it, but it was still in the very, very germinal stages, right? There was some proof of principle in terms of, you know, cellular, or some wild type. And, you know, we didn't know how actually to make this work. And over the last four years, what we've done is we've taken that and converted that into a drug development platform where the way we are approaching this is how do you tackle gene expression, pre-transcription, so as to make the central dogma work correctly? So think about it. Disease occurs because genes are either overexpressed or underexpressed. And conventional drugs have gone after proteins or later on with mRNA when they have tried to either tamp down the protein or mRNA or allow the protein to bind more. So there has been this activity where Nobody's really focused on fundamentally what is happening, that the genes are actually not expressing correctly. Now, there have been gene editing companies and gene therapy companies who kind of work a little bit higher in the central dogma and started tweaking the DNA and making changes to the DNA, right? Which inherently is risky. I'm glad that they did it because, you know, lots of patients have benefited from that. But when you think about gene editing or gene therapy, you don't know what the collateral issues you're creating. And these therapies have 10, 15, 20 years follow-on periods, right? What if we could actually go where genes sit and use nature's mechanism, which is epigenetics, to really control their expression, bring them back to a normal range so that the central dogma and the level of protein that is created is fine so that disease resolves itself. That's what we are doing. And the way we are doing that is essentially programming mRNA that actually can go in to the place where genes and their regulatory elements sit in these IGDs, which are wholly contained control units of gene expression and cellular programming, and lay epigenetic marks for the tunability and the duration that is disease-specific. So for oncology, a couple of weeks, 
you know, for chronic medicine, maybe two months, three months, six months, we are able to do all that. So we can program in the property that we really want from a specificity of targeting standpoint, and then the tunability of the gene and the durability of action. Imagine if you can program those three things, the medicine does exactly what you want to do. And we have been able to do that. And the reason it excites me is because not only do you prospectively design it, but really speaking, it is far more certain in terms of how it will work, what properties you can expect, because the biology is pretty clear. The biology works. So if you can tackle the technology to make the biology work, you have a winner. So our probability of success at the preclinical level is pretty high, right? We have demonstrated this works across four or five different disease areas, actually more than that now. And we have our first medicine in the clinic. And the medicine that is in the clinic for hepatocellular carcinoma, we are going to see MIC gene. That from scratch, where we started interrogating the gene to actually getting an INT clear was 27 months. That's how fast we can do it. So think about it. You can from scratch create medicines that can get IND cleared, you know, in 27 to 36 months. That's, That's what excites me about programmable medicines. And Mahesh, this is certainly at the intersection, as you mentioned, of biology and technology. I'm curious if you've started to see folks from adjacent or perhaps even orthogonal backgrounds from an engineering perspective express interest in working on programmable biology yet, or if that hasn't started to happen yet? I'm an engineer. <laughs> I can tell you, I mean, if you think about, funnily enough, if you look at a lot of people across, I mean, I think the chairman of my company, Dubar, he's an engineer. So this has been happening. I think as engineering and biology keep colliding, this is the century where we have so much control on biology, first of all. It's a century of biology, I believe. But I think you're coming up with technology and engineering solutions to biology. If you think even at the entire depth of the organization, of course, you will have people who really need to understand biology, right? So there is, engineers can't really do that necessarily because it's a content expertise that you need in biology. But if you think about things like mRNA, if you think about things like delivery, whether it's lipid nanoparticles or other things, right? These are all technology solutions. These are all engineering solutions that need to come. So yes, I think people with a scientific bent who can actually understand biology, have a little bit of you know, knowledge in biology and a little bit of knowledge in engineering can actually enter this industry going forward because that's really the collision that I'm seeing. So, I didn't dream when I actually did my engineering degree and when I came to America for a PhD in engineering, got out of a master's, that I would be actually working in a biotech industry. If you asked me 20 years ago, I would have laughed at you saying, you're kidding me, right? But I'm seeing that is absolutely possible. Yeah. And Mahesh, you know, certainly seems like you've made great progress in a short period of time and particularly found a way to de-risk some of the common challenges within drug development. I'm curious now, we're recording this at the end of Q1 in 2023, and biotech's been in the midst of a correction for a little bit now. How is that changing your approach to how you're running the company and areas of focus? First and foremost, I mean, Markets have been tough, right? As private companies, as well as public companies, have found that it's not always the easiest to raise money. So what that means is you really have to be very efficient and you really have to use your money wisely. So look, one thing about Omega and my company that I can tell you is that we have always used money very efficiently. And that kind of also comes from a background of my team, my own background, but also my team very operationally savvy senior team, right? These people have run businesses. They have, you know, 
been in big pharma, they've been in small companies. So they have an operational mindset. It's not just a scientific tinkering mindset where you don't worry about the money and you know scale up teams as soon as you gain, as soon as you raise money. So that's one thing. I think responsibly using your capital has become even more important now. But from an Omega standpoint, I don't think that has made much of a difference because we've already done, always done that, right? I mean, to me, the other things that you really need to do in markets like that is really have focus and make sure that you are delivering on inflections, you're delivering on results and making sure that your efficiency is very high in terms of the things that you do. And, you know, you kind of have to make your dollar go further. There's no two ways about it. And I think companies are learning that, right? I mean, in the heady days of 2019, 2020, and especially after COVID, everybody put money into biotech. That's not happening. So you're going to see companies that are separating out where there's real technology, real efficiency, real progress, you know, real products coming out. Those will separate out from the companies that were sort of fly-by-night operations that may or may not, should not have got funded. So you're seeing that separation. And I think you're realizing senior management teams understanding that. You're realizing boards understanding that. The board senior management teams have become much more vigilant. So these are the changes that I'm seeing. But, you know, look, from an Omega standpoint, I feel pretty good about where we've always been and how we have run the company. Great. You know, Mahesh, given that you're publicly traded, even for privately held companies, but I think much more so for public CEOs, it's oftentimes a lonely journey being in that CEO seat. And I'd love to hear from you how you handle the ups and downs emotionally of being at a biotech and a high growth biotech, but a publicly traded one in an environment like this and any advice you'd provide folks that are listening. Yeah, that's a tough one. And that's also very individual, right? I mean, I think, look, first and foremost, I'll tell you that I'm really fortunate in terms of my family. You know, my wife is a rock, right? My wife, I told you about my journey, international journey with Novartis. I mean, you know, one day I came to her, I remember in 2010, and said to her, hey, you know, I have this tremendous opportunity to go to Switzerland. And she's like, what? My kids were six and three. She said, okay. And, you know, I've known my wife since we were 19. We were classmates in engineering. She's very qualified. She's at a tech company. She's on the executive team of a tech company. So she's very, very qualified, right? And she's my rock. So I have a rock at home that I can actually go to. So that's one piece, right? The second piece is obviously my family as well, the rest of my family, but having that rock at home helps. Secondly, I think I have an incredible team. It's an incredibly mature team that has helped me go through the ups and downs, right? At the end of the day, uh, Raul, I think, you know, you kind of have to find ways to deal with this, right? Internally, I think it's your ethos. It's sort of how you're brought up, what you believe in, my background, my immigrant status. I think a lot of that has to do with it, right? I think you'll hear, so the, you know, you, you have definitely heard. I mean, I think sometimes, you know, as an immigrant, you kind of need to make it work. You have nothing to fall back on. That mindset actually helps a lot. So I think it's different things. I mean, meditation helps, exercise helps. People need to do what they can to disperse the stress and diffuse it because these jobs are stressful. There is no question about it. And when you're dealing with public companies, when you're dealing with investor money, when you're dealing with the stock market, of course, there's going to be stress. But you kind of have to figure out a way to compartmentalize it. There is a piece which is about work-life integration, which I fully believe in. But at the same time, you kind of need to compartmentalize to maintain your salary. So that's what I would say. 
Yeah, wonderful advice, Mahesh. And certainly agree with a lot of what you just said, particularly immigrant mentality. You know, before we let you go, I'd like to ask you to reflect one last time now. And given all of the experiences you've had and all the things you've seen, based on those experiences, what's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self, knowing all that you now know? <laughs> so like, look, a couple of things, right? When I, when I reflect back on my life, right? I get asked the question many times, right? Say, what would you change? And I would say nothing. I wouldn't change a single thing because that's the beauty of life, right? I mean, I think, you know, you can sit at any point in your life and wish I had done this and wish I had done that. It doesn't get you anywhere. So the advice I would give to my younger self is really, look, there are going to be periods in your life where you're going to come to crossroads. Honestly, you know exactly which path to take because your, your values will tell you that, your ethos will tell you that, and everything will tell you that. And that path might be difficult at times. Yeah. Yeah. But stay true to your values and your ethos and to yourself. And that is the only advice I would give to my younger self. Great. Well, Mahesh, it was a pleasure chatting with you today. Thanks for sharing a small part of your own personal journey and continued luck and fortunes to you and the rest of the Omega team. Raul, thank you very much. This was a really it was a terrific conversation. Thanks for adding a bright spot in you know otherwise a hectic day that you can imagine me and you know a lot of people in my shoes have. So thank you very much. This was a very good conversation. Really, yeah, same here, Mahesh. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.